Good morning, everybody, and welcome once again to the Digital Cathedral here in Houston, Texas. As you can see, we're still on home sheltering in Houston and probably will be for a few weeks. I'm looking at maybe the 1st of June to get back into a different setting. Although, to be really honest with you, I've enjoyed doing these out of, out of my house. It's a much more comfortable setting and I feel a little more personal contact with you than I even do coming out of a, out of a church and behind a, a pulpit. This morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. We're working our way through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and we're up to the point where we're at Ephesians chapter 2. My thesis this morning, as we get into the second chapter, is really pretty simple. My thesis is this, that when the true gospel, the true gospel, the full gospel, pure gospel, is taught, exposed, and experienced, that at some point it's going to become irresistible to every pre-believer and it's going to work a work of transformation in every believer so that's how i'm looking at ephesians chapter 2. i don't think there's any doubt that this revelation that paul brings us in ephesians 2 i mean paul's the man right he really is he's the man that has the revelation to set people free and to bring them into a position that they've always had but really didn't know it if you've been with me for the last couple of weeks as we've gotten into the book of Ephesians, you'll know that Ephesians 1 lays a great groundwork. It, it does some great groundwork. And Ephesians 2 picks up where Ephesians 1 leaves off. Ephesians chapter 2 is all about God's heart as a father that leaves no stone unturned. I mean, you go through this second chapter of, of Ephesians, there is absolutely no stone that the father doesn't unturn to ensure that this eye-popping awakening, and that's the only way I know to express it because it is eye-popping, that this eye-popping awakening that awaits all of creation is revealed. And there is so much revealed in this book of Ephesians. Um, Romans is a book, great book of theology. If you want to develop a strong theology, a systematic theology, you want to develop a doctrine on, on a wide variety of areas, then Romans is your book. Ephesians, on the other hand, is a book that makes you want to do a happy dance because all of a sudden your eyes are opened, you're, you're enlightened, you're seeing truth that uh, has no limit to its depth, its width, its height, its breadth. Ephesians is a book that you want to uh, read like you're reading it for the first time. You, you need to do that sometimes with the Bible. You need to read a book or read a passage like you're reading it for the absolute first time. Take your religious classes off. Take all your preconceived ideas down and just look at it. Don't look at it as a scholar, but look at it as the son that you are, right? Read it like the daughter of God that you are. All right, let's look a little bit at this, this book from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, let me read verses. I want to read the first 10 verses. We're going to cover the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, all right? So if you have your Bible, follow along. I don't like to read long passages normally because I think I might lose your attention, but focus on this. If you have an app or a Bible nearby, grab it. Let's look at these first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Notice how he starts this, this second chapter. It says, and you he made alive. I mean, that's the gospel right there. Five words and you he made alive you you he made alive no, notice how paul lays this out i mean right from the get-go of ephesians chapter 2 you see how good god is 
He made you alive. It didn't say he made you alive when you did any certain act or you prayed a prayer or you believed something or you had enough faith. It just says very simply, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you also walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons and the children of disobedience. Verse three, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So Ephesians, in this very first verse, he just says, here's the good news. Let me, let me just get the cat out of the bag. Here's the good news. And then verses two and three tells us what he and he alone has brought us out of. He does a good job in verses two and three of just saying, this is how you were. We all were this way. We all walked this way. But he doesn't say that until, first of all, he gives the assurance in that first verse that he made you alive. And he says, you know, you once were dead in trespasses and sins, and we're going to talk about that because it mentions it again before we get down to verse 10. But he says, you were once dead in trespasses and sins, but he doesn't say that till he first gives you the assurance that he made you alive. You know, these from verses 4 to 10, there probably isn't any passage in Scripture that lays out the gospel in any more clear fashion than these first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter two. I mean, it's like a machine gun. Paul just comes in there and he, in, in just bang, bang fashion, tells you the Father's plan, the Father's motivation, the Father's heart, the Father's method, the Father's vision, man's design. Then he tells you what man's part is in this, and we'll, we'll get to that. He gets in verse eight and nine, he talks to you about your part in this. And then he discloses this eternal unveiling of the Father's goodness to man that's going to take the eons of time to unpack it. So let's, let's look at some of this. In verse 4, he lays out why God does what God does. Let, let's look at this. Verse, verse 4. I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes on verse 4, and then we'll get a, kind of lump it together. But verse 4 says this. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. But God who is rich in mercy. Verse four lays out why God does what God does. Why does he do everything that he does? It all originates because of his great love. Isn't that what it says? Because of his great love with which he loved us. And it starts with his mercy toward us. His love comes out of his mercy. Verse four, let's read it again. But God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. So when you see the love of God, you have to know that out of the love of God, it starts with that mercy that he has toward us, right? The, 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 the love is, is the point of origination and mercy flows out of that love. Now, mercy is an is a, is a awesome word. I did a little bit of research on the word mercy and I liked what Strong's Concordance had to say about mercy. Strong's Concordance says that mercy is kindness toward those that are afflicted, listen, it's kindness to those that are afflicted with the desire to relieve them, all right? It's kindness toward those that are afflicted with the desire to relieve them. Now, here's the Keithley definition of mercy. My definition says this, God looks on everybody that's in a mess and he says, I'm gonna get you out of the mess. God looks at everyone that has a problem 
And he says, I'm going to solve the problem for you if you'll let me. His love that's demonstrated through his mercy solves every dilemma. Verse 4, I mean, this, this is the heart of the Father. This is, this is why the Father does what he does. He does it because of his mercy. He's rich in mercy. He doesn't have shallow pockets when it comes to mercy. The Old Testament says that his mercies are new every day, that his mercy endures forever. I forget which psalm it was, but it just, it just keeps reiterating. His mercy endures forever. It makes a statement, then it says his mercy endures forever. That fourth verse says why God does what God does. He does it because he's rich in mercy, and he can't help but be rich in mercy because of this tremendous love that he has toward us. So that's the heart of the Father, the motivation of the Father to do why he does what he does. Now think about this. If that's really true, if God does everything he does because of this love that springs out of him and then mercy flows out of that, there's no possible way that a father that is omnipotent and omniscient can ever leave any person, ever any, any of creation in this eternal dilemma of separation. It, it just cannot happen. It's contrary to his nature of love that is demonstrated in mercy. If his mercy really does come out of his love, and he is love, and he looks on, on as Strong said, those that are having a difficulty, those that are afflicted, and he has harnessed with that uh, that notice of affliction, he has a desire to bring them and relieve them of the affliction, then there's no way that God could ever leave us in an eternal dilemma. All right, so that's verse four. That, that's, that's such a foundation. That's a, such a strong verse. Now, verses five to 10 talks about everything that the Father's done for us, and we're gonna walk through it verse by verse. Verses five to 10 talks about everything that God has done for us, what he has completed sovereignly on his behalf for us. Verses 5 to 10 wraps us in this inclusive love that the Father has for us. It wraps us in this inclusive security. You cannot read verses 5 to 10, but what you feel, the Father's secure embrace. And the, 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 the powerful part of verses 5 to 10 is there is not one qualifier. Let me just repeat that. There is not one qualifier that the Father puts on it for you to meet to gain what he gives out in verses 5 to 10. He goes, in fact, great lengths to dismantle the futility of your efforts. And he says, you look, here's what you need to do, he says. You need to rest in your complete dependence on what I have done for you. So let me walk you through some of these verses. Now, verse four, he lays the foundation. It says, I do what I do because of my great love for you, and out of that love for you flows a mercy that sees a dilemma and a desire to relieve you of the dilemma. Now, verse five, he lays out the problem. Ephesians chapter two, verse five, he says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I cannot read that verse and I read, I read Ephesians a lot. I cannot read that fifth verse a lot, but what I get this mental picture of people that are unknowingly dead in trespasses and sins. And he makes them in that condition. The mental picture I get is we were in that condition and, and most of us didn't realize it, didn't know it, or maybe we did know it. Maybe it was a, a, 
a blatant rebellion that kept us in trespasses. He gives us the problem. You were in the trespasses. Then he gives you the solution while you were in that condition. That's the powerful part of that fifth verse. He says, when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He, did, he didn't say, after you repent of your trespasses, after you have had enough faith or after you have done you know, some kind of sacrificial work that I relieved you and I made you alive together with Christ. He gives us the problem and then he pulls up alongside and he says, here's the solution. He just lays the solution out there and direct deposits it into our life. Then he builds on the solution from verses six to nine and he brings it to this tremendous conclusion in verse, in verse 10. So this fifth verse, even when we were dead in trespasses, all right? So he starts with us in the pits, all right? We're dead in our trespasses. The word dead there is the word necros. It, it means we're, we're destitute of life. We're inoperative, we're inactive. Uh, and we are in that position of being inoperative, destitute of life, being inactive, uh, dead, necros. We're in that position because of trespasses. Now, most of us think of trespasses in terms of being sins that we've committed, but that's not an actual accurate definition of trespass. Trespass technically means, and I think this is what Paul was driving at, it technically means a lapse or deviation from truth or a deviation from uprightness. Let me say it like this. We got off our design track of truth about ourselves and we took a wrong turn. We deviated from the plan that God had for us. And whenever you deviate from the plan that God has for you, 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 you get, you have, you, you've gotten off track, right? In that condition of being off track, in deviating from the plan, in moving from the design, he made us alive together with Christ. The consciousness that we had was dead to who we were. It was inactive. We were lifeless, uh, inoperative. This, this is what Paul drives at in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1. Now, don't lose your place in Ephesians 4 because we're going to come back there. But this is exactly what Paul is driving at in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21 when he says that you were alienated in enemies in your minds by wicked works. But in that condition, it says in verse 21, that he has reconciled us. And you who were alienated in enemies in your mind by wicked works. He says it another way in uh, Ephesians 2 and 6, or 2, 5. He says, when we were dead in trespasses, it's the same thing. We were alienated in our mind. We're inoperative. We had no life. In that condition, in Colossians says that he reconciled us. Back to our text in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, it says that he made us alive with Christ. So he, he did that for us when we were in this uh, lapse of memory, when we, when we had forgotten who we were. Adam got us off track. He deviated from the course, right? Adam deviated from the course of his intended design and Jesus came to put us back on course. The course of deviation for Adam 
and I want to unwind this further in, in a few minutes, but the, the deviation in Adam's course was in his mind, was in his head. He thought God was angry in his mind. Was God angry? No. He felt separated in his mind. Did God ever leave Adam? No. He felt this, he, he became inoperative. He became ineffective. There was no longer the flow of life. So Jesus, in that condition, verse 5 says, came to set us back on track or to save us. He made us alive together with Christ, right? For by grace, that fifth verse says, for by grace, grace is a one-way act of love. Grace does not need a response. God, grace does not need you to do anything. Grace, grace is a gift. For by grace you have been saved, sozo, right? Sozo means to make whole. It means to make uh, well, to rescue, to restore to health, to protect from danger. Saved does not mean a ticket to heaven. Religion has totally misdefined the word saved and used it for a purpose for which it was never intended. You cannot find anywhere in the word sozo that designates heaven. It's all about now. It's about soundness, wholeness, wellness, restoration, now, right? So when we were off track, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. You've been placed back on track as a one-way act of love from the Father to you. Now, if that's not enough, I mean, that's Verse four and five, if we never got any further than verse four and five and knew that it was because of his great love that he demonstrated mercy to us and that he got a hold of us when we were off track, set us back on track, by grace we were made whole, we were made well, we were restored, we were protected from danger. That would be, I mean, that's the gospel, brother. That's good enough. But he goes on in verse six. Look what he says in verse six. I told you, Ephesians is a book that makes you want to do your happy dance. Not only when we were dead in trespasses did he make us alive together with Christ because grace, one way act of love, we've been sozoed, but verse 6 says, and he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. So not only did he do all of that, he has raised us up together with Christ and seated us in heavenly places in Christ. He's taken us from death in verse 5, to a blessed life in verse 6, a transcendent place, a higher level of consciousness, a, a, a new perspective. He has seated you together with Christ. Powerful stuff. But like the infomercial says, wait a minute, that's not all, there's more. <laughs> he goes on in verse 7, he goes on to verse 7. This thing just keeps building, and as I told you at the start of the teaching today, it's just like rapid-fire machine gun. He just boom, boom, boom. In verse 7 says, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God's vision for eternity shows that his verse 4, love and mercy, never ends. But the love and the mercy continues to flow for us, it says in verse 7, for the ages to come. For the endless eons, this thing just continues to unfold and unwind. I don't know what that says to you, 
But that tells me what a good God we have. It tells me what, a, what, a, what an awesome Father that we're connected with. So he's taken us all this way. Now, have you seen so far that in verse 4, it was his love, his mercy. It was, in verse 5, it, it was his doing that saved us by grace when we were in trespasses. It was his doing, verse 6, that seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, in, in, in verse 8 and verse 9, he addresses your part, right? Here's what he says, and watch this, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So the grace is from God, and the faith is from God. Now the way I read that verse for years was, it was his grace but my faith. That's not what the verse says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it, the grace, it, the faith, is a gift of God. It's his grace and his faith that saves you. It was not, not your faith. It was not your receiving of grace. It was his decision to impart grace and faith to you that saves you. Verse 10, not of works, lest any of us should boast. So he takes your works and he pulls it totally out of the equation, totally out of what he's doing. Now, I know that that deflates religious flesh. If you're, if you're new to the digital cathedral, you're watching me maybe for the first time, you really don't know where I'm coming from. That deflates your religious flesh when I tell you that you had nothing to do with it. It was his grace and his faith. For by grace you have been saved by faith, not of yourselves, lest any man would boast, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now here's what a work is. A work is an effort or a deed or an undertaking, even, even mentally, that we do that thinks we've accomplished something. A, a work is an act or deed that we do. It's an action that results in an accomplishment. Anything that you think that you do, anything, any, any action, that you think you can bring to the table and to contribute to what God says he's doing all by himself, that's a work. Now he says, it's not a works because he says, I don't want anybody boasting about this. And man, there is so much boasting going on today about what we do to get ourselves saved, to get ourselves whole, to get ourselves right with God, to get ourselves on the right side of the ledger. We feel proud about it. We look at other people and think, well, they need to do what I did to get themselves in a position that I'm in. And it, it comes across when the, when the world looks at, you know, the prayer of faith, the, the, the confessing yourself, all the, all the little hoops we've got to jump through and that we say, we did this, now you must do it or you will burn eternally. We're boasting about what we have done and what they haven't done and that what they must do to be like us, right? And he says, no, 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 no. We're, we're taking all of that out of the equation. I don't want you to feel proud. Don't want you to pat yourself on the back. There's no confidence in your self-achieved position. There's nothing you have to feel arrogant about. You can't look down your nose at anybody else because of the choices you made, the prayer that you prayed, the card that you signed. Here is why there's no boasting in achievement. Here's, if you're still wondering about, man, maybe it was the prayer I prayed, maybe it was my faith. You know, you're so ingrained in that. 
In verse 10, he tells us something that I will guarantee you. I made a Facebook post on this the other day. I guarantee you, you've never heard a full teaching on this in your church. If you're an evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal, holiness, whatever. You've never heard a teaching on this. Verse 10, I'll, I'll guarantee you, because I never taught on it, because I didn't see it. Verse 10, have you got it so far? Four, five, and six. God's love, God's mercy. We're in trespasses and sins. He sozos us, looks on us with favor, pulls us out, seats us in heavenly places in Christ, says it's gonna take the ages to come for me to show you the love, the grace, the goodness I have towards you. It was my faith, my grace that saved you, not of you, nothing you can boast about, nothing you can be arrogant about, look down your nose at somebody else, call them out and you're in, that you got it, they don't have it. And here's why, verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship. Listen, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I will assure you, as sure as I'm sitting here, you never heard a message about being created in Christ Jesus. What you heard was a message about being created in Adam. Nobody ever told you you were created in Christ Jesus. From creating us to ordering our steps. Do you, do you see that in that verse? You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works which he before ordained. So from the creating to the ordering of the steps, it's all him. He created you in Christ Jesus. You can't take any credit for that. You had nothing to do with it. You say, well, why does that matter? Because here's why it matters. He's building security in, in Ephesians chapter 2. He's, he's going out of his way to build security and tell us. Here's what he's telling us. There was never a time. Oh, this is good. This is the gospel. There was never a time that you were not in Christ. I don't care what your church told you. I don't care what your denomination hammered. I'm reading it for you out of the book. You were created in Christ Jesus. If you were created in Christ Jesus, how could there be a time that you were ever not in Christ Jesus? You were created in that position. Now, rather than looking down our nose at people and saying you were in, you're out, you have it, you don't have it, how about if we began to look at everybody from that position of being created in Christ Jesus? If you're a Baptist, how about if you look at the Methodists as being created in Christ Jesus? If you're a Methodist, how about you look at the Charismatics as being created in Christ Jesus? If you're a Charismatic, how about if you look at the man at the corner that holds the sign up? The exotic dancer down at the club. The drug dealer as being created in Christ Jesus. I, I dare you to begin to have that perspective. Paul said, don't know anybody after the flesh. That's what he's getting at. You're creating Christ Jesus, we all were. And he takes a lot of pride in his workmanship. He looked, he created you, and he looked back, he stood back, jumped back, and said, very good. Very, he, didn't, he didn't say, oh man, look, look, I created this one flawed. I gotta, I gotta shoot this one out to planet Earth flawed. No, 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 no. Verse 10 just closes the deal. You, you were... You were a son and daughter of God way before you ever became a Christian. Verses 4 to 10 is the gospel. It's the vision of God. Verse, 
verse one to three, verse four, that's the heart of God, the motivation of God. It's all good. It's from start to finish, you cannot find anything in the second chapter of Ephesians that is, is not good. It, it makes us feel secure. Nothing in these verses that ever would indicate any lostness on our part. Our life, our future is not in question. He has, he has secured it. This is, this is a, a teaching, and I love the digital cathedral because it gives me a place I can just put the good news on. I don't have to worry about repercussions and kickback because if you don't like what I teach, just turn it off. You don't have to watch. But I'll tell you what, there's people all over the world that are hearing the message. There's people all over the world because of you, because of your prayers, your support, your help that keeps the message going. People are hearing the good news. And my premise today, my, my thesis today is that when people hear the good news, it's going to change their life. People have not heard the gospel. They haven't heard about Jesus. They've heard a religious message. They haven't rejected Jesus. They've rejected the messenger. They've rejected the message. They haven't rejected Jesus or the gospel. The Father lays out the life that we were designed to live. So what happened in all this? What happened? The first man, Adam, bought a lie that he was not like God, that he needed to do something to become who he already was. And so at that point, Adam died in his awareness, and that's what, what Sozo is all about. Man died in his awareness that he was one with God. So Jesus came and he conquered that death in awareness that had put a veil over our eyes and concealed the identity that was authentic who we always were, image and likeness of God. Ephesians, I think it's two, uh, Genesis chapter two, verse seven, I think it's two seven, that says that God blew into man's nostrils the breath of life. You know what that breath was? That was the very essence of who he is, eternal life. He blew into the nostrils of man eternal life and man became a living soul. Man was endued with eternal life from, from the very beginning, from the very first breath of God. When you came to this planet, the first breath that you drew, drew was the breath of God into your nostrils. And you're continuing to breathe the breath of God. Every, every breath you take is a reminder of the divine life that started within you at the first breath. Every breath is God and I'm exhaling him to others, right? I'm taking him in and I'm releasing him out. Jesus conquered that death in awareness. Jesus resurrected to newness of life and he brought you out of the tomb with us. It says in, in that fifth verse, and we read it, for by grace you have been saved. The lie that Adam brought into the human race, in mind, there was a corruptible seed that was planted into the mind of humanity. And we all bought the lie. We all bought the lie of separation in our minds. You never had, you never had a fallen nature. Your nature was always breath of God, life of God, eternal life. But you didn't think so. That, that corruptible seed was planted in your mind. So Jesus came and put an incorruptible seed in your mind, an incorruptible seed of life. And the lie of who man thought he was should have been left in the tomb. It should have been left in the tomb, but it wasn't. Religion picked it back up and carried it for 1,500 years and told us a lie. <clears throat> 
Religion told us we were born dead, separated from God, apart from God, that we were born corruptible, that we were born inherently evil, that we were born uh, like our father, the devil, that we, were, that we were rotten to the core. And if you don't do something about it, that you'll never live the life of God. And if you don't do something about it before you die, that you're gonna meet an angry God, a hostile creator that's going to look at you and is gonna be repulsed by you and cast you into eternal conscious torment because you didn't love him back. I mean, the lie of religion that should have been left in the tomb was the same lie that the serpent whispered to, to Eve that you have to do something to become like God. That's the lie of religion, to do something to become who we already are. And they're playing upon this corruptible seed that is really no longer in your mind, but they make you believe that it's in your mind. Religion has lied to us when the truth sounds better. <laughs> Why would you lie to anybody when the truth sounds better? We read 10 powerful verses, actually 11 powerful verses, one to 10, that just outlines the care of God, the protection of God, the vision of God, the eternal unveiling to us of the Father. We read 10, 11 verses that should make us feel so secure in the Father, in his omnipotence, his omniscience, and the perfectly designed plan that he had for us. I mean, it's laid out there for you perfectly in 10 verses. Religion is all about developing this false sense of independence and makes you think that if it is to be, it's up to you. If it is to be, it's up to me. Isn't that how the saying goes? Scripture never speaks of, of any of God's creation. No creation of man that has been born independent, separated from the creator as though we existed apart from God. There, there's, there's no scripture that ever intimates that. Any sense of separation that comes, comes from a false sense of self-independence. And any sense of independence from the creator has been something we've created in our head. Paul told the idol worshipers, they were all pre-believers in, in uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Let, let me read that for you because Paul is dealing with people that didn't pray the prayer, that weren't believers, didn't confess anything. These were idol worshipers. Paul goes to Mars Hill where they're worshiping idols. And in verse 28, he speaks to them and he says this, for in him we live and move and have our being. Notice Paul, didn't, Paul wasn't making a I and you or us and them statement. He didn't say for it's in him I live and move and have my being, he reaches out like he does in Ephesians and he pulls those idol worshipers in and says, for it's in him that we live and we move and we have our being. And he goes on, he says, I'm gonna affirm even what some of your poets says, for we are also his offspring. Do, do, you, do you see what Paul is saying there to these pre-believers? that Adam's perceived sin and its separation from God was a lie. Adam, Adam perceived his sin removed him from God's presence and separated him. Did it in his mind? Yes. In God's mind, no. 
In reality, no. In Adam's perception, which created his reality, yes. In many people who have sat in church all of their lives, or people that just come into a church, that becomes their perception because of what they hear. So it becomes their reality. Now, religion, religion bases a lot of that on one verse, and I want to read the verse for you. It's actually from the Old Testament, Isaiah. This, this is one we, that they really cling to. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. Listen to this. This is, this is one of the main verses. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this for you, and then we're going to look at what it really says. Isaiah 59, 2 says this. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he shall not hear you, or he will not hear you. Did you hear what it says? But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, look at this verse. Do your iniquities separate God from you, or you from God, you from your awareness of God. What, what does the verse say? L let me read it slow. For, for those of you who haven't caught it yet, your iniquities have separated you from God. Didn't say separated God from you. God's never been separated from you. Now see, that's what we heard. That's what we heard. That's what was told us, that sins have separated God from us, that we're separated from God because of our sins, right? That God can't look on sin. God can't look on any of that. That's not what he's saying. In our, in our awareness, in our perception, sin has separated us. Colossians 1.21. Iniquities in our head separate us in our awareness from God. But even in that condition, he reconciled us. Now watch. Your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Did your face hide from him? No, never. God always knew where you were. God always looked on you. God always saw you. Now, here's, here's the tricky part. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. All right? Now, there's two false assumptions in that verse. And two false assumptions produce a false conclusion. The false assumptions, too, is this. Is that God can't see you because of your sins and that God has separated himself from you because of your sins. So because God can't see you and God has separated himself from you because of his sins, he can't hear you. Well, let me ask you a question. If that's true, then how does a sinner ever repent because God can't hear him? If, if sin puts you in a place where God doesn't see you and God is separated from you and God will not hear you, then how do you repent how, how do religious people weigh that out? I'm not talking to you at the digital cathedral because we're not worried about that. We know that Paul says in uh, Romans chapter, what is it, eight chap, chapter 8, verse 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither death nor life, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We know that Hebrews chapter, what is it, 1017 says, God says, your sins and your iniquities, I remember no more. So, you know, churches over here confessing all these sins and iniquities that God doesn't even remember, that have not separated us. But to the religious person, I'm, I'm wondering today, how do, they, how do they rationalize that, that God will hear you when you repent if your sin has separated him from you and he cannot see you, therefore he cannot hear you. Two false assumptions brings a false occlusion.
right? If you, if you really believe two-way, how could you, the first part of the verse, how could you repent because 2B says he's not listening? Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Everything is part of the one I am. There's no dualism here. There's no God here, you here. Everything is part of the one I am. There's one life, one power, one spirit, one mind, one Lord. Now, I'm going to walk you through some, some scriptures real fast this morning at the Digital Cathedral. So good to have you with me today. This is, I think this is what, April 26th? I'm doing, I'm doing the recording a little earlier, but I think it's the 26th. So good to have you with me from where, wherever in the world you are. Let's look, let's look about, a little bit about this. Everything is one. There's no dualism. There's no separation. In, in, I'm going to hit several real quick, and I'm going to hit them because I, I, I've read them before, but they're worth repeating at this point with what Paul has taught us up to this point. In Romans chapter 11, verse 36, it says, For in him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. So everything comes from him, through him, back to him. There's, there's only one. There's only one. In, in John chapter 1, the first four verses of the Gospel of John. Let me read this. First four verses, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that it was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, in Him was all life. No life was created without Him. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness could not overcome the light. That's what the word comprehend means. It means it couldn't overcome or absorb it. Darkness can never absorb light. Now watch. Uh, and it shined in darkness. And then in verse 9, it says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Light and life, they're interchangeable. Light is life, life, life is light, light is life, okay? Then he says in verse 9, that was a true light which lights every man that comes in to the earth. So the light of verse 4 is his life, and there is one life, there is one light, it's all his, and it lights, did you get that ninth verse? His light lights every man that comes into the earth. There's no separation. There's, no, there's, a, there's Jesus light in every person. All we do at the digital cathedral is flip the switch. We flip the switch. You're already wired. The light is in you. We just flip the switch so the bulb will shine, right? So you get it, right? Let's keep going. Let's look at what Paul said. I want to drive this dualism out of your mind, this sense of separation that God can't see you, that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't look on you. We just went through those 10 verses in in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 that makes us do the happy dance. So now I'm just coming back and I'm pulling out some religious weeds that may be uh, sticking with you in this. Colossians chapter 1. Don't leave me, man. This is all good stuff. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. We're talking about oneness. Everything arrives from him, through him, back to him. Verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Everything was created through him and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things. I bet you never heard this in church either. And in him all things 
consist. You cannot be outside of him. Impossible. In him all things consist. He is the only I am. Everything exists in the I am, including you. So if you, if you are included in the I am, you're as much as the I am as he is the I am. So when I say I am righteous, I am justified, I am holy, I'm coming from that position of being a partaker of the divine nature, of my oneness with him. You need to think about that. You need to let that sink deep, let it take root. There is only one I am and you're part of it. In him, in him, everything consists. That's what it says. That's what it says. I didn't make up. You can't be apart from him. You can never be apart from him. How can you be apart from omnipresent? How can you be apart from him when he says everything consists in him? This separation message has got to go. The world, has not, the world hasn't listened to it. They have known intrinsically that something's wrong with that. All right, two chapters over. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He said, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. And he runs through the circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Greek, Jew, Scythian, barbarian, all. Christ is all and in all. You cannot get outside of him. I want to drive that home today because Paul did a masterful job in that second chapter of Corinthians, verses 1 through 10, of saying that to us. But see, in our blindness, we thought we were independent beings. We thought we were the uh, captains of our own ship, the masters of our fate. And that's not really the case. The Father has had you in an embrace from, from the very get-go, from before, before you were ever a, a, a glimmer in your daddy's eye. He had your back. He placed you in Christ before time began. You thought you were, you were, you thought you were your own man, your own woman. You, you could chart your course and do your thing. You didn't understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Man, we're, we're unwinding some deep stuff today. I hope you're getting all this. I'll tell you what, I like teaching from home on Sunday morning. I may just keep doing this from home. I don't know. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says this. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? He dwells in you, who is in you whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Whoa. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Your body and your spirit, listen, your body and your spirit, which are God's. Your body is God's. Your spirit is God's. You don't belong to you. When he redeemed you, he, he got hold of you, brother, and there's, there's not you getting out of it, okay? I've got, I've got to unwind this. I've got, to land this. I've got to land this plane. So what do we learn today? We've learned at least four things. I hope you've learned a whole lot more than that. But number one, we've learned that Jesus, Mr. Inclusion, and not Adam, Mr. Exclusion, is God's final word about man. God has included us all. We've learned, second of all, that the status of our relationship was, is, always, will be our Father in us, as us. 
and always one with us. We've learned this morning part of that second thing that Jesus is God's total mind made up about all of us. He's already made our mind up about us and reflected in Jesus. Third thing I hope that you learned this morning is that all guilt, fear, condemnation comes through seeing through the lens of, of Adam. You need to put some new eyeglasses on if you're still seeing through the lens of guilt, fear, and condemnation. That's not the lens you look through. You look through the lens of the last Adam. And I hope, number four, that you've learned this morning that Jesus' work on the cross did not change your identity in the slightest, but brought us back into full awareness of our authentic identity, who we've always been. You know, overall today, I hope, I hope you've heard in this message, God's not mad at you, never been mad at you, never will be mad at you. He's not angry. He's not vindictive. He's not judicial. In fact, he's madly in love with you. He always has been. You're the apple of his eye. Let me give you the question for the week we'll talk about on Sunday morning. I, I, I can't wait to hear your answers. What broke for you? Here's my question of the week. What broke you free from the lie of separation? I'm talking to a lot of people in the digital cathedral this morning from around the world. We have a, we have a worldwide reach here. I'm talking to a lot of you that bought that lie of separation. Let's help one another. What broke the lie of separation for you? I know what it did for me, and I'll tell you Wednesday night. I'd like to know what it did for you. Just make a comment. When I put the video on Facebook or on the Don Keithley Ministries page, which I will post it there as well as YouTube, make some comments. Share this teaching with other people. Other people need to hear this liberating truth from Ephesians chapter two. We're in this thing together. We're on a journey. God is bringing us into some very awesome things and we're just, we're getting there. We're further than we ever thought. It's all good, it's all God and you're part of it. And I love making the journey with you, I really do. God bless you this morning. Have a wonderful day, a Jesus-filled week. See you Wednesday night and see you back next Sunday morning at the Digital Cathedral. Have a good day.